Hello and welcome to today's podcast from the Video Journal of Hematological Oncology. In this episode, leading experts Graham Collins and Wendy Osborne will debate the top lymphoma research presented at the ASH 2021 annual meeting and how the new data will impact clinical practice in the UK. So welcome uh, to this uh, roundtable ASH uh, 21 discussion. Thank you very much for Vijay Hemonk for uh, putting this on. Uh, we'll be discussing lymphoma data and particularly it's how it applies to UK uh, practice. My name's Dr. Graham Collins. I'm a hematologist and uh, lymphoma lead in Oxford, and I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Wendy Osborne uh, from Newcastle. Thank you for joining, Wendy. Pleasure. So it was a bonanza, I think, for lymphoma this year. We were completely spoiled. Um, quite hard to sort of keep it all in our heads, I think. Um, and Wendy, I think one of the things that really struck me and I think it's generated a lot of conversation and is potentially practice changing was the data on high dose methotrexate prophylaxis for CNS relapse uh, in diffuse large B cell lymphoma. We had two studies. One was looking at uh, intercalated methotrexate with RCHOP versus end of treatment. And another by the Australian group was looking at the efficacy of high dose methotrexate. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts initially, Wendy, if you're happy to sort of summarise the, the, the outcomes and, and, and how you in Newcastle are applying the data. Thank you, Graham. So I think that, um, well, for a long time now, we've known who the high risk patients are for risk of CNS relapse. And we know that that's a devastating outcome for our patients with the, the response rates being very poor if patients have a CNS relapse. Um, and I think it's fair to say that over the years, we've probably given a lot less intrathecal and moved to intravenous methotrexate. And the retrospective data looking at timing of intravenous methotrexate um, concluded really that if you give it intercalated, so amongst the cycles of RCHOP, you can cause a 20% delay of RCHOP delivery. And obviously this is... Um, of detriment to the patients. And we would be concerned that delaying proven RCHOP therapy would, would be a poor outcome. And so now if you're going to give it, I think giving it an end of treatment, so after you've completed the RCHOP um, is, is optimal. And these data confirm that. I think that the other um, retrospective data um, presented by Kat Lewis gives a lot of food for thought and discussion and has certainly caused a lot of discussion between um, lymphoma colleagues around the world. And this was looking to see if actually there is any benefit at all of giving that intravenous methotrexate. And, you know, it's a fantastic study, retrospective data, but huge numbers of patients. They had 2,300 high-risk patients. And these high-risk patients had a CNS IPI of four to six or were considered to have high-risk sites. And they looked at these patients as to whether they'd had IV methotrexate or not. And within the group, there were 390 patients who'd had the high-dose methotrexate. And what they showed was that when they compared the patients who had high-dose methotrexate compared to those who hadn't, there wasn't a difference, significant difference in relapse risk. So it was about 8%, I think, in the high-dose methotrexate arm and 9% in the no high-dose methotrexate arm. So when I, you know, when you first hear this or you read the abstract, you think, fantastic, we can stop giving this potentially toxic treatment to our patients. However, I have to say that 
when making that decision, I would give caution when looking at the data. So initially they were hoping to get 650 patients having a high dose methotrexate and they got less than that. So it was underpowered and the groups weren't matched. So there were significantly more higher risk patients in the high dose methotrexate arm, um, maybe 10% more with um, three or more extranodal sites and 25% more high risk sites. So, so they weren't matched. And when we go back to that initial SMIT data, um, that CNS IPI four to six was quite varied. So four had a 10% risk, whereas an IPI of six was nearly a 30% risk. So when you don't have matched groups, you know, you could say, well, maybe, maybe that we would expect them to be even higher in this high dose methotrexate group. And actually getting down to the same is a good outcome. And then the sort of one of the other final thoughts really is how much high dose methotrexate did they have? Because they only looked at patients who'd had one cycle or more. And obviously when in Newcastle, we would give two or more. And we would give a minimum dose of three grams per meter squared and a third of patients, the dose wasn't recorded. So I just think with caution, with a small event rate um, and with, with not matched groups, trying to remove it for everyone, for me, doesn't feel at the moment that we've got the data to do that. So you asked what we're doing in Newcastle. We're going to give less. We're going to focus on patients with a CNS IPI of six and really think carefully if they have a CNS IPI of four and not routinely give it to CNS IPI of, sorry, of four, but think if it's the CNS IPI of five. We will continue to give it for high risk sites and probably um, just be really cautious with these older patients because they're the ones that get the methotrexate toxicity. So focus on younger patients. And we don't use age as a cutoff, but um, biological status of 70 or older, we would be less keen to give the high dose methotrexate. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, we're with very similar thoughts here in Oxford. We're, we've actually got our Thames Valley uh, regional meeting this week to discuss what we're going to do because it's it's interesting isn't it how when you're it's so ingrained that you do something to actually stop doing it is very very difficult and slightly goes against the, the grain sometimes you know um, and particularly when CNS relapse is so devastating so I think like you Wendy we'll probably be focusing on the CNS IPIs certainly of six and high risk sites such as testicular but probably dropping it for the fours um, and probably most of the fives and making sure that the people we give it to are fit. So very similar thoughts um, are. And it's interesting though, isn't it, to, to see the spectrum of what peop how people are reacting to the data. Some saying drop it completely, um, some saying stick with the status quo and some saying give more. You know, if, if high-dose methotrexate isn't enough, we need to give more, uh, maybe RSC as well. So, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, interesting how these uh, data is interpreted by uh, people differently. Um, I think that's true. And I, I think that if, if people were keen to stop it before this, then they probably yeah. would use this data just as extra evidence, whereas more cautious people might go through and say, well, hang on, what about this and what about that? And, and we need to discuss this with our patients because the yeah. truth is, is that none of us really know. Yeah, absolutely. And another sort of fairly hot topic in MDTs uh, is radiotherapy, the role of radiotherapy in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And I was very interested to see uh, a, another retrospective data set, but a huge one. I mean, almost 40,000 patients from a US um, data set looking at the role of radiotherapy in early stage diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. We've seen a, 
a drift away from using radiotherapy, particularly in PET negative patients, end of treatment PET or end of chemotherapy PET negative patients. And there's been some studies, albeit relatively small, um, certainly compared to 40,000, um, suggesting that the outcomes from a sort of PET directed approach are good. But there's been some concerns raised that we may be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, yes, it's good maybe to reduce radiotherapy, but where it's safe, you know, are we actually potentially omitting um, a modality which may reduce the relapse risk, albeit modestly? Um, so this was a very interesting data set. It essentially showed that um, the five and 10 year overall survival um, was um, prolonged for patients who received radiotherapy, both for nodal and extranodal disease, modestly, but um, by about five percentage points. Um, and the other thing I thought was very interesting is the um, subgroup analyses looking at the extranodal sites. So it seemed to be particularly beneficial for testicular uh, for thyroid, which I thought was an interesting one, and skin and soft tissue, and less so for bone um, and breast, both of which slightly surprised me. So again, Wendy, I'd love to hear what you do in Newcastle now, and will this inform your practice, or uh, again, is it is it status quo for you, do you think? So uh, again, I think that this was a really helpful study and huge numbers, so it's very impressive. And I think that I mean, in Newcastle, we would tend to give a combined modality approach of three um, R-chops plus radiotherapy or a PET-guided approach of three R-chops, a PET scan, if that's negative, give a fourth R-chop. We would do that for our early stage nodal patients without bulk. And really in our MDT, if they fit that criteria, we would have a discussion about what is more risky for the patients, a fourth R-chop or the radiotherapy. Now we'd had a lot of discussion over last year about whether to include extra nodal patients within this group, because with extra nodal patients, although in the fantastic British Columbia data and in the SWOG data, extra nodal patients were included, there was quite a broad, obviously a broad group and small numbers in each group. And so it's difficult to know whether, you know, a large numbers of tonsillar extranodal, which I would consider as nodal and would be quite happy to include that. But what about the risk of bone or thyroid, as you've just said? And the retrospective data from Memorial Sloan Kettering also showed that there was benefit um, that the extranodal patients don't do as well if you shorten their chemo. So I have to say that we've continued giving our extra nodal patients six cycles of our CHOP and radiotherapy consolidation. So I think in terms of this, this to me just highlights we need to think carefully about removing radiotherapy. Our clinical oncology colleagues are so important in our MDT about weighing up the risk and benefit. I don't think that we can say that these data presented at ASH mean that we should be giving radiotherapy to all. It didn't use a PET-guided approach. And there were no details on the number of cycles of chemotherapy. But again, for me, I'm still less keen to reduce the treatment for our extra nodal patients. And we will continue giving six and radiotherapy at the moment. Yeah, I guess it's a heads up, isn't it, as well, that, you know, radiotherapy is active in lymphoma and, um, you know, using it judiciously and in the right patients is important. I even thought, you know, with the bone, OK, it didn't show a benefit in bone as a subgroup. But of course, the numbers as you go into each subgroup get lower and lower. And yet often the bone, you know, primary bone lymphomas, if it's in an arm or, a, 
you know, an iliac bone or something, the risk of radiotherapy is so low um, that I sort of think, you know, actually any benefit they may derive is, is low risk. And again, with our clinical oncology colleagues, we still often do irradiate those patients. Uh, yeah, well. I completely agree. And, and you know, the, the risk of relapse is devastating. You know, moving to high dose and an auto is devastating. So um, it has to be individualized, that discussion. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I did find this data helpful because we were talking about whether we should start including our extra nodal patients into more of an early um, stage group, which many centers do. It's not the wrong thing to do. These, But, but for the reasons I've discussed, I think that these data would just mean that we're keen to keep that. That treatment intensity up for them, including radiotherapy. Yeah, thanks, Wendy. Um, one thing I really like in Ash is when you get a decent presentation on supportive care, because you know that again is perhaps neglected uh, slightly in terms of investigation. And, uh, and there was a really interesting uh, prospective, even randomised uh, study looking at bone protection, so alendronate uh, in patients receiving. It wasn't just a few large beers; it was patients receiving steroid containing. Uh, immunochemotherapy, uh, the siesta study, uh, small numbers, I think, Wendy, but, and the primary endpoint wasn't really a clinical endpoint. It was a, a bone density endpoint, but it was positive, um, at least looking at bone density in one part of the skeleton, um, suggesting that maybe we should certainly be taking bone health more seriously and potentially intervening. Um, again, interested to hear your thoughts. Do you think that should uh, inf- uh, change our practice in terms of bisphosphonates and calcium and vitamin D? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is practice changing. And if practice hasn't already changed in your centre, then I, I do think it should include bisphosphonate prophylaxis. I mean, we we knew from retrospective data presented at ASH a couple of years ago that the, the fracture rate is high. Um, the you know, this was just looking at patients over 70, but it was something like an 11 or 12 percent fracture risk for patients who'd had um, steroid containing regimes for lymphoma. And we'd audited our data in Newcastle and found almost exactly the same. And it's these things that you're often unaware about. You'll think, fantastic, I've cured the lymphoma. This is all great. The patient's fine. And then they have significant morbidity after their treatment and they're going to different centers for their hip replacement, for example. So this randomized trial of about 30 in each arm, um, showing that there was a benefit in that mineral density weighted score, a T2 score, in the patients who had weekly alendronate without toxicity, I think we should be doing this for our patients. And I think what's going to be interesting is who we do it for. So the study was all patients aged 18 and over with um, RCHOP-like regimes. Before this study, we were personally in our centre, we were looking at patients who were over the age of sort of 65 to 70 with another risk factor, such as bone involvement with lymphoma or um, previous fractures, and for those giving them bisphosphonates. However, again, we need to have a discussion whether we broaden that out in view of this data. Small numbers, but bone protection is really important. Mm -hmm. And provided their renal function is okay, and there isn't going to be sort of dentition concerns in terms of osteonecrosis of the jaw, I think that more and more bone protection as standard of care sort of prescribed alongside the chemotherapy is important. Mm, absolutely, yes. I mean, we, we've sort of adopted the approach of giving everybody calcitube, essentially, um, with so calcium and vitamin D, and then bisphosphonates, as you say, Wendy, for the higher risk patients. We've actually gone with a single dose of zolendronic acid IV when they come for their 
first our chop but um and you know that the risk groups as you say were came out of that study that my colleague toby air led um so yeah we're sort of targeting the, the higher risk too so yeah i absolutely agree and uh, you know i can think of some patients um i mean there's only one or two but you know who really have crippling um pain from their osteoporotic vertebral fractures you know i mean it's really impaired their quality of life and i think beforehand we just thought maybe this was coincidence but I think now we appreciate it's actually a lot of steroids you get with, you know, six cycles of our CVP or our CHOP. So uh, very important to think about it. Yeah. And we, and we give so much bisphosphonate in, in myeloma for myeloma patients. And it's something that we're all quite experienced at, at doing and most patients tolerate it well. So to me, mm. this is something that should be practice changing. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and another really interesting study I thought presented looking at the more a more sort of holistic approach to our patients was the use of psychodynamic drugs. Um, this was as a surrogate for uh, depression, essentially depression and anxiety in patients treated for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, and this was well, not just treated, actually diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. This was high and low grade and this was a big sort of Danish um, population study. The Danes have excellent um, databases, uh, not just for cancer, but also for primary care and um, you know, um, drug use, pharmacy uh, data sets. Uh, so I thought it was a really nice example of a project um, linking two data sets together, uh, the primary care data set, looking at what drugs were prescribed and also the uh, cancer data sets and showing an increase, certainly in the first year after diagnosis of psychodynamic drug use for all lymphomas. And I think, Wendy, what I found particularly interesting, and um, um, I mean, I don't know if it was surprising or not, but what was the low grades where actually they didn't seem to go back to baseline in terms of their risk of psychodynamic drug use, um, but the risk was increased over a number of years. And actually there was an increased risk of uh, self-harm and even um, suicide attempts. So, I, you know, there was no intervention in this, but I think just a really important study highlighting this um, issue. What, what were your thoughts on that, Wendy? Yeah, again, I think that this shows that we mustn't just focus on the lymphoma and the treatment um, for our patients. And the fact that there was that increased risk across all subtypes of patients requiring um, psychodynamic drug therapy um, is really significant. And we do need to address this as part of our, our whole assessment of the patient and make sure that we've got good support. And, and I think we're getting better at that. Um, I think that certainly where I work, we have, um, you know, our Maggie's Centre, which is fantastic for the psychological support for patients. We have our specialist nurses who are fantastic and clinical psychologists. But it's often not the, the primary thing that we consider and we should be bringing it up and discussing with our patients. But the data from the low grade really was concerning and the data showing that um, it doesn't ever normalize. So it did for high grade within five years of treatment. So it seems that if a patient is treated and cured, then the patient's um, they, they, they come off their, their antidepressants or whichever psychodynamic drugs they've had. Whereas for low grade, it stays as does that risk of self-harm um, and suicide. And so I often say this to our registrars in clinic, we often follow up a patient with follicular lymphoma and say, oh, they're a, a quick watch and wait review. And actually, I don't think they should be. I think that we should be spending time with them because many of these patients watch and worry. 
They may never need treatment for their follicular lymphoma, but they their whole um, for many years, they might have low mood and anxiety. So their mental health is impaired, even if their physical health doesn't require treatment. So I think that, again, highlighting this study, I'm pleased it got an oral at ASH this year because it's a really important aspect of making sure we look after our patients properly um, and not just about delivering chemotherapy or targeted therapy. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, moving on to the sort of more therapeutic approach in frontline diffuse large B cell lymphoma, you know, one of the real highlights, I think, was to hear the Polaris data. Um, so this was frontline randomized phase three trial, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, I thought really well-designed study in that respect with progress, progression-free survival as the primary endpoint. It was an RCHOP plus X study, you know, which many people have been saying will always be negative, uh, as they have been historically, and the X in this case being polotuzumab vedotin, the antibody drug conjugate targeting CD79B. So RCHOP versus um, RCHOP plus polotuzumab. Um, Wendy, um, do you, are you okay to sort of summarize the primary endpoint data and you know what your thoughts are? Obviously, we can't use it yet. It's not licensed, but it will be imminently, I'm sure. And then NICE will be uh, saying whether we can use it in England and obviously the respective authorities in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So interested to hear your thoughts. So like you, I thought this was a really well-designed study. There were about 440 patients in each arm, so good numbers, and um, double-blind placebo-controlled. So um, it, it felt like a good design of study. And the primary endpoint was a two-year progression-free survival, and it showed that it met its primary endpoint. So there was a 6.5% improvement in PFS in the polituzumab arm. So... I think that um, in terms of the fact it met its primary endpoint and therefore reduced the numbers of patients going on to require second line therapy is fantastic outcome for our patients. And we've not had an improvement in our CHOP in 20 years. And I think that that is um, good news. I think the I think the big concern really is that there has not been an overall survival advantage shown. And the, the overall survival, you know, is that because um, patients who relapse after they've had polituzumab are, are harder to get into response second line? And that's why we're not seeing survival benefit. Is it that it's a bit early? Is it that our second and later line therapies are getting better? I think that's difficult. So for me, um, if there's a PFS benefit, I would then go on and look at the toxicity. And the toxicity was pretty similar in both arms. Um, the main difference is that there was more febrile neutropenia in the polytuzumab arm. I think it was 8% up to 12%. But there wasn't an increase in neuropathy, which was my worry with polytuzumab. Is that going to be a problem? So for me, if there is an improvement in PFS um, with minimal change in toxicity, would I give it to my patients? The answer is yes. Will it be funded? The answer is I don't know. I think that this is gonna come down to health economics and this needs to be reviewed by NICE, looking at um, by reducing numbers of expensive second and third line therapy in terms of CAR-T, Will that be of health economic benefit? Um, so therefore to allow approval. 
And that needs to be assessed by health economists. That isn't me. Um, if I'm able to give it to my patients um, to try and reduce them having that, you know, not great second line high dose therapy in auto, then I would. Um, and, you know, I'm, I am disappointed there wasn't a survival benefit shown, if I'm honest. Um, but it's whether we see that later, I don't know. Mm, so would yeah. you be giving it to your patients, Graham, if it's approved? Well, I'm so glad. I mean, you've mentioned it already, but I'm so glad to live in a country where I don't have to worry about the cost of the medicines. You know, that's worried about by someone else. Um, and likewise, you know, if I had if I had diffuse large B, I would want the treatment with the highest PFS. You know, I think we do have to remember as well, the trial wasn't powered for overall survival. Uh, therefore, there might be an overall survival benefit that's just hidden by the numbers, you know, hidden by the power, the inadequate power of the trial to show it. Um, and, you know, is the PFS a fluke for some reason? Well, I think no, because they did show, as you said, the reduction in second line treatment. So it is translating to another beneficial outcome. Um, I think the other thing that was interesting, uh, Wendy, and I'm sure NICE will sort of grab, will you know, look at this is the subgroup analysis. And we're all, you know, rightly trained to be very cautious interpreting subgroup analyses. But it did seem that the higher IPI groups, three plus, that the whole trial population was two plus, uh, but the three plus particularly seemed to benefit more if you just look at the forest plots and take them at face value. So there were some other subgroups as well that seemed to benefit more, perhaps older patients, perhaps the ABCs. But if I was sort of, you know, um, had a crystal ball, I would sort of be predicting that NICE might um, uh, restrict availability to make it more health economical, perhaps. Uh, to the higher IPI groups. I feel always a bit uncomfortable when that happens because of the lack of power in subgroups, but I, you know, it may be that, that our use is limited to a higher risk group, in which case so be it. Um, uh, so say, I'm just glad that I'm not the one who has to make these decisions. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. And I think that the, the, you know, the subgroups weren't powered. So um, it's, it's frustrating sometimes when NICE make their decisions depending on that when it's not powered for it. But I can understand that if trying to get um, availability on an economic ground, then that that is not, I think that's probably what will happen as well, if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah. And another um, frontline uh, study that uh, I, th I thought was perhaps just a little glimpse into the future. I mean, this isn't practice changing, but was uh, Zuma 12. I mean, I really liked this study in many ways because it was focusing on high risk diffuse large B cell lymphoma. And I think they were proper high risk. So you had to have a, uh, a um, you had to have a double hit um, based on cytogenetics, albeit a partner, you know, that the MIC translocation partner wasn't defined or a high IPI, and you had to have an interim PET positive scan after two cycles of RCHOP, and with a good number actually being Dovil 5. And then for those patients, they were taken off their frontline R chemo. I mean, they weren't all RCHOP, but RCHOP or RCHOP-like, perhaps Dari Pokar, and given a CAR-T approach using um, Axicel. And it was, you know, I, the data as it stands, it was small numbers of patients, and it's relatively short follow-up. Uh, but showed a, essentially a PFS of around 75%. So very, and a response rate, obviously higher than that. So, and, you know, in my mind, I'm always comparing with the petal data, which took interim pet positive patients and gave them a Burkitt-like um, chemotherapy regime, much bigger trial though, and probably a much less select patient cohort um, and showed really dismal results. So it was just very intriguing. I thought that potentially using 
uh, a CAR-T approach for this very high-risk frontline setting is certainly worth investigating further. And, you know, maybe the way where we're heading, thought it was also very interesting that they looked at the CAR-T product and it seemed to be a more sort of um, T-cell fit product compared to those used in in, um, third line, which is, of course, where the current license uh, is for CAR-T use. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Wendy. I just wondered if, you know, in... 10 years time, we might be seeing, well, maybe even less than that, we might be seeing the randomized trial suggesting we should be using uh, CAR-T upfront in high-risk diffuse large B. So so like you, um, I I think that the future will be that we will be able to understand who the high-risk patients are, whether this is defined as was defined in Zuma 12, I'm not sure yet, but um, I think that we will also use a risk-adapted approach as we do in Hodgkin. So looking at the PET scan, probably using different PET parameters as we understand PET scanning more and more. Um, It did take a long time to get the patients into trial for Zuma 12, so the screening period was long and you would think right they, they there are some although they're high risk um, in terms of their definitions they're obviously good enough risk patients to get into a frontline trial um, but the fact that significant numbers have progressed on that PET scan you know I agree with you the outcomes are better than I thought mm-hmm. and it makes sense doesn't it that if we take these T cells off patients earlier before we've exposed them to lots of chemotherapy um, that they will be fitter and you would think you know therefore um, more CAR T expansion less CAR T exhaustion and I wonder if the the future might be that at diagnosis we can just take everybody's t-cells off them and stick them in the freezer in case we we need them it might be that we're not going to need them for everybody frontline um but it's it feels that the earlier we can get those t-cells um the better in terms of the efficacy of, of of car t later on so small numbers um one to look out for but yeah I agree that zuma 12 is is certainly something that we're discussing but not practice changing yet Mm. so if you're an investor watching this you should invest in apheresis machines maybe (laughs) (laughs) okay um and uh uh, uh, you know talking about car t i mean there was a lot of really interesting data in car t you know not one not two but three randomized clinical trials looking at CAR-T versus a conventional approach, so chemotherapy with autologous stem cell transplantation in first relapse diffuse large B. Two big trials, uh, so Zuma 7 looking at Axicel, Belinda looking at Tisacel, and one interim analysis, um, the transformed study uh, looking at, I'll call it Lisacel just for <laughs> uh, clarity uh, and ease. And, you know, the bottom line here was that Zuma 7 was a positive trial, Belinda was a negative trial, and Transform again was a positive trial. This has led to much discussion about whether this is due to differences in the product or differences in the trial design. And there were some significant differences. I mean, the the basic similarities is that they were all one-to-one randomizations of a CAR-T approach versus a chemo with autologous stem cell transplant approach. In each trial, around a third of patients actually made it to their autograft, which I thought felt about right. You know, that's sort of what we see in practice, maybe even less actually in practice. Um, the, um, the toxicity was what we would expect. So for Axicel, there were higher neurological uh, grade three plus events at around the 20% just north of that mark. Whereas with Tisacel and Lisacel, it was both significantly less than that. Um, and there was a big difference, though, in time to from apheresis to 
uh, Carti infusion. So it was down in the 20s for Axicel. It was just over 50 uh, for Tisacel. So big differences there and differences in the bridging that was allowed. So a lot of bridging was used in Belinda, sometimes even two lines of bridging chemo, um, whereas the only thing that was allowed in Zuma 7 was steroids. And it was a more select group. They did exclude more patients in Zuma 7 with very aggressive disease that may be imminently leading to clinical deterioration. Uh, the primary endpoint in all three was event-free survival, which is slightly confusing because there were subtle differences in that definition. Um, and the, there was no overall survival in any of the trials, albeit I thought in both Zuma 7 and Transform, there was a, I, I always want to say a significant trend, that's a contradiction in terms, but there was a marked trend. You know, you, you sort of think, wow, they're close. And in all three trials as well, there was significant crossover. In Zuma 7, that was off protocol, but in the other two, it was on protocol, but around 50%, again, it was give or take, um, in the standard arm crossed over to CAR-Ts. That may explain why the overall survival was not affected. So, um, uh, Wendy, again, interested to hear, hear your thoughts. I mean, I guess, you know, Zuma 7 being the positive one, that's the likely, Axacel is the one that's likely to get a license in that setting. Tisacel, less likely. Transform, uh, you know, Lisacel, it's a bit too early to say yet. Do you think this is the approach to use for a high-risk relapse? I mean, that's the other thing. They were all high-risk relapse patients. But is this the way to go, do you think? So, I think... I hope so. I mean, when we see our patients having second line therapy, it's such a different conversation, isn't it, to our frontline R-CHOP discussion, which is quite positive, 60 to 70% chance of cure, well-tolerated treatment. When we meet our patients to have that second line GDP and auto discussion, it's a really breaking bad news discussion. And, you know, we are hoping for long-term responses in about 20% of patients. So, most of us are thinking second line that they're probably going to go on to CAR-T third line. And in fact, we prepare that. We make sure we've got the biopsies ready to get the patient through the panel. Um, we, we just are really ready to go third line. So if we could change that standard of care second line approach, I think that that would be a really positive thing for patients. And I think that when we looked at Zuma 7, I, I was concerned initially that no bridging was allowed. I thought, well, hang on, is this that they've really selected good risk patients, low volume disease who often do well with CAR-T. But then when you looked at the numbers of patients that got to auto, it was similar in the Zuma 7 and in the Belinda study. So that suggested that the, the groups were reasonably well matched in terms of the numbers of patients that got to auto. So, um, so will it change practice? I think that as you've highlighted, there are difference in the, the trial designs and the difference in the um, what was considered an event in both arms. But I think that for Zuma 7 data, which is the one that is most likely to go forward for approval, um, if patients relapse within 12 months um, and it goes through the health economic model, because if the patients don't get through second line in the UK, most of them would go to CAR-T third line, then I would really be hopeful that this will be a change in the future. Mm, mm, absolutely. I guess the one thing that worries me, actually, th thinking about how this is going to be applied is obviously this was by definition, the eligibility was you had to be autograph fit because, you know, the standard arm was chemo and an autograph, but the people I'd really like to give T-cell to at first relapse, uh, CAR-T rather, to at first relapse are those who are CAR-T fit, but not auto fit. Because, you know, at the moment we have to go through a line of therapy that we know is not curative. 
just so that they fail it and go on to, to CAR-T. So yeah, I, I, I assume these trials won't affect that group, which I think is a real shame. Yeah, I, I agree. But it's interesting, isn't it? They were deemed to be autofit in the studies. But then when you looked, they had patients, you know, I think the oldest was 79 in, in one of the um, uh, experimental arms. And, mm, yeah. and you know, it, we wouldn't give a patient um, who is 79 a beam auto. So, you know, we start being quite cautious once patients reach the age of 70, obviously biological age, not chronological age, but there are definitely patients within the study who it would feel would be not CAR T um, or auto fit, but would be CAR T fit. So I, I agree with you that at the moment we give these, you know, patients Gemox second line to get them to CAR T third line, it would be fantastic to try and bring that CAR-T, which is well tolerated earlier in the treatment pathway. But possibly, um, I think people will be saying that their patients are fit, even when they're um, you know, in their early to mid seventies to try and get them CAR-T second line. And for us in the UK, it will depend on how um, NICE stipulate um, the, the approvals as to who we can get into that group. Yeah, what the blue tech form is going to look like. <laughs> that's, and, that's and, yeah, and, and I think that we, we think a lot about the blue tech form and what we are going to consider. And those patients that have to relapse within 12 months of end of our CHOP therapy, I do wonder whether we'll be doing more scans. I mean, would you start scanning at 11 months to make sure that you're not going to miss um, a potentially better second line option for your patients or at present, as we all do, just do clinical follow-up. What do you think? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think I will be scanning more of my high-risk diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients, in even if they're asymptomatic, because you know we're going to have a, a, a treatment which is time-dependent. So time-dependent as in if you relapse after, if you miss it by a month, you know, they're 13 months, then we won't be able to take the blue tech form and use it. Whereas, um, but also we need to, you know, that the evidence suggests if you get in quickly, so you have a short, um, you know, if your patient's well, performance data zero or one, that's when it's of particular benefit. So it's time dependent in that you don't want them to relapse and become unwell um, because then, you know, this therapy is going to be less effective. So I think there's two reasons really why I think I will be doing more scans, not across the board maybe, but certainly for select patients. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think when we're thinking about change in UK practice, so in the UK, we've never done surveillance scans and, you know, we do the end of treatment scan and then say, OK, clinical follow up and contact us if you have X, Y or Z symptoms. But there were other data at ASH this year also showing that actually it was it was a trial looking at um, looking for uh, circulating DNA and um, CT scanning to try and predict relapse. And it showed that the um, DNA wasn't in the test that they had sensitive or specific enough, but that the CT scanning picked up 40% of asymptomatic relapses. Now, in the past, that I would have thought, well, it's not really going to change. We'll treat them when they've got symptoms. But now that we have CAR-T options and now that we see a lot of patients not getting to CAR-T because of disease progress progression, it does feel that we may benefit from knowing about a relapse earlier. And so maybe practice will change that we do do, you know, more regular imaging. I'm sure that the radiology department are all groaning inside at this suggestion. But I think that if it means that we can get to patients to the next line of therapy more successfully, then maybe that additional imaging will be of benefit. Um, 
Mm. Who knows? Mm. Absolutely. Um, and then one, perhaps one final um, abstract just to briefly pick up on. And I know we've been very much focusing on high-grade lymphoma. There was so much data in high-grade lymphoma uh, this year. But I want to pick up on one low-grade lymphoma abstract. And there was a lot out there on low-grade. Uh, but that's the bispecific data because, you know, bispecifics are looking at, like a very active um, group of uh, drugs. And we heard some uh, uh, longer-term follow-up data on the phase two study of mosinotuzumab. Um, in relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma, showing very good response rates, you know, an overall response rate of 80% in, let's say, a relapsed refractory group, quite a high proportion of uh, POD24 patients, um, a complete response rate of 60%. And, you know, what we're really waiting for is the more mature follow-up and survival data. And the progression, median progression-free survival was just more than, just a bit, little bit more than 17 months um, and I, you know, again, when I'm sort of interpreting this data, I always have the idealistic data in my mind because, uh, you know, that was one of the first sort of novel agents in this group, and that progression-free survival was, you know, around the sort of eight nine month mark. So, uh, you know, very healthy looking PFS. So, Wendy, just interested to hear your thoughts, you know, on uh, how the sort of follicular lymphoma pathway is sort of shaping up. How might that change, assuming this gets? Uh, approval and funding, because that's, uh, uh, you know, hopefully we will hear whether we'll be able to use mosinotizumab within the next uh, year or so uh, for this indication. So I'm, I'm really excited by the bi-specific data. Um, I love the fact that it's off the shelf. Um, I think that we, as we've already discussed, it's sometimes quite difficult to get patients to CAR-T um, and it's logistically quite difficult. Whereas a, um, a bi-specific product that you could see a patient in clinic and treat them the next day um, with good response rates and well tolerated is really exciting. Uh, and I think that, you know, most of these patients receive as an outpatient as, as well. So, um, you know, that again is encouraging not having to go to a treatment centre and spend at least two weeks as an inpatient as they do for CAR-T. So um, if this does get approval, to me, I just want is, is durability of response, which is really important because that's, you know, we need to know that to be able to discuss with our patients. And it feels to me that there is still the bi-specific versus CAR-T race, so to speak. I mean, at ASH this year, we had more follow-up on the Zuma 5 and the Alara trial as well, again, showing good response data um, in heavily pre-treated patients. But if something's easier to give and less toxic, it may be that we give biospecifics ahead of CAR-T. Um, and I think that out of all of the patients with lymphoma that I look after at the moment, the most complex treatment pathway is follicular. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we, we're all our chemo front line, but where does R squared fit in? Where do we decide that we're going to do more chemo and an auto? Um, and where will these biospecifics fit in if they're approved? Um, so as well as understanding response data, we're going to have to understand response data after which prior lines of therapy, because that will affect it as well. Um, mm. But, you know, I, I think that this will be a fantastic option for our patients with low grade disease.
Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that um, I've sort of come to realise more is, of course, the biospecifics are also fixed duration, aren't they? The, most of the trials, you don't just stay on it forever. So I think it was eight cycles and stop if you're in a CMR, and if not, up to a total of 17 cycles. So even though obviously it is more visits or a longer treatment duration than CAR-T, it is at least fixed duration. And yeah, like you, Wendy, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's so, because it's such a long journey, the follicular lymphoma journey, um, it really does get complicated, but I wonder if we will start seeing, as you suggest, you know, frontline our chemo. I can't really see that going anywhere for a while. Second line, maybe our chemo or our squared. I, you know, I'm still a our chemo fan. You know, perhaps our bender first line, our chop second line. Then I think we'll be seeing biospecifics for sure, maybe in combination with lenalidomide. That may be where it's going. Uh, and then fourth line CAR T. You know, so we may be seeing a much more uh, standardized pathway, which is very exciting because obviously each of those regimes is so active. Um, uh, yeah, so I think there's there's really good news on the horizon for uh, for follicular lymphoma patients, which is great. Mm -hmm, I agree. So I think let's draw stumps there. Wendy, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much for all your wisdom and insight uh, into the data at ASH. It's been great discussing it with you. Thank you very much again for v uh, Vijay Hemonk for asking us to do this uh, and for um, educating us all. Uh, and thank you very much for uh, listening. It's been uh, uh, great. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you, Graham. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast. And if you found it useful, we would love if you could leave a review. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk to join in the conversation. You can also visit VJHemonk.com for the latest updates in the field.